Welcome to episode 93 of Paper Talk, a series of podcast interviews featuring artists and professionals who are working in the fields of hand paper making and paper art. I'm Helen Hebert, and I run Helen Hebert's studio, a hand paper making studio in Colorado's Rocky Mountains, where I create artist books and installations. I also host the annual Red Cliff Paper Retreat and Paper Making Masterclasses here in the studio, and I run a membership program called The Paper Year and teach online classes about paper, light, and books, too. Find out more at HelenHebertStudio.com. Today, I'm interviewing Marianne R. Petit, an artist and educator whose work explores fairy tales, anatomical obsessions, graphic and narrative medicine, as well as collective storytelling practices through mechanical books that combine animation and papercraft. Her interests are combining technology, traditional book arts, and sequential storytelling to create new forms of narrative for the 21st century. Her movable books can be found in numerous museum and library collections. Her artwork has appeared internationally in festivals and exhibitions, been featured in publications such as Hyperallergic, Make, and Wired, and broadcast on IFC and PBS. Enjoy our conversation. Marianne Petit, welcome to Paper Talk. Hi, Helen. It is so, so nice to be here. I'm really just so excited to be here and talk with you. And I'm such a fan of you and your work and the podcast and everything. So it's a real treat. Thank you. Thank you. Well, right back at you. And I remember um, corresponding with you and then meeting you at uh, the Movable Book Society. Right, right. I don't know, four or five years ago. Time is kind of hard to... (laughs) It was Boston 2016, I think it was. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and you've contributed to um, my paper year project and yeah. and my new book, The Art of Papercraft. So yeah, maybe we'll talk you. a little bit about those things. But let's mm-hmm. start with um, uh, where you grew up, how, where you went to college, and sort uh-huh. of how your journey with paper began. If sure. there were any early early beginnings in that. Well, you know, so I grew up in New Jersey and I feel I was very fortunate. My parents had immigrated to the United States and my dad really loved, like, he was a very enthusiastic uh, newcomer to the United States. So we were very active and he loved taking advantage of everything. And so Mm -hmm. I have very early memories of going to museums um, and, you know, the Metropolitan Museum of Art, the Museum of the American Indian, all, but I, and the uh, Museum of Modern Art, I have like very clear memories of being like five years old and seeing Bruce Nauman's Green Corridor and that kind of thing. Um, And so, um, I don't ever remember not being an artist. Like I just, I was a very awkward kid and I ended up having a back brace and braces and glasses. And I just drew, that's mm-hmm. all I did. I just would, was a drawer. That's, mm-hmm. that's what I did. And then um, when I went to college, I ended up studying printmaking um, and uh, I loved woodcuts and I ended up also really sort of focusing on intaglio um, and viscosity printmaking. And where um, was that that you went to? It was college? at NYU, at okay. NYU with Krishna Reddy and uh, Bill Payton. And then what happened was at around 20, maybe I was 21, I got a job working at the um, Venice Biennale and I was a guard at the American Pavilion and oh. the 
artist was Issa Minaguchi and my oh. job, I know, my job was to tell people to take their shoes off before they got on a slide sculpture. Um, but the theme of that was art and science. And it was very early on in terms of immersive video installations and that kind of thing. And I was completely transfixed and it took me down a journey towards technology. And that's where I sort of stayed um, for about 20 years. Um, until around 2005, I started noticing, and I had your book actually, um, one of your books, but like um, around 2010, I started to do all these sort of paper experiments and I was just finding myself with drawers full of folded paper and, um, and just these sort of little pop-up studies. And it really, um, and then in 2010, I was, I just felt like I wanted to come back to it and think about it in the context of narrative. And then I started making these pop-up books based on the Struval Peter. Then. Okay, okay. So, Hang yeah. on, I wanna go back <laughs> and, and, uh -huh. and yeah, uh, get a little bit out of what you've just said. So sure. first of all, Isamu Noguchi is one of my favorite artists. Yeah. And for listeners who don't know, he did a lot with paper. He yeah. actually, because it sounds like it was sculpture that was- Yeah, at, no, at there the was pavilion. a room filled with his lamps. Oh, there were. Okay. Yeah. Ah. Yeah. So it was, it was, it was a retrospective of his work. So it okay. was my, it was really kind of amazing to be able to spend weeks and weeks just surrounded by these Noguchi lamps and sculptural works. Right. It was incredible. Yeah. Right. And how did you um, end up doing that, that job? <laughs> I had applied you know, such a sort of convoluted. I mean, I feel, I feel like I never have a plan, but things uh -huh. always sort of connect. Uh -huh. I had a, job I had applied to a studentship at the Ven uh, Peggy Guggenheim collection okay. which still is a program I believe that there are still student internships there uh -huh. so it was a month-long internship where you sort of guarded the collection right and um, you know most of the individuals that went to it were young students who were interested in art history and museum studies etc or were graduate students who were focusing their research that had to be somewhere in the archives or libraries at Venice um, and so I just sort of ended up there oh okay Wow. Yeah. Cool. 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 Okay. So, um, back to your drawing, did you have yeah. any, any training in drawing or by, before you went to college? You know, I took art classes. Certainly. Uh -huh. I think uh -huh. that I was very, I was encouraged, um, uh -huh. you know, because that was like the one thing that I did. So I do remember having like school, I mean, in school, I always took classes and I think I, you know, the local community centers and that kind of thing took painting classes and drawing classes, et cetera. Um, but, um, yeah, um, but I don't think, yeah, I mean, and then at, at school, you know, did sort of the traditional drawing classes and 2D design classes and all of that kind of art school stuff, <laughs> you know. And then were you incorporating your drawings into your printmaking? Cause you said yeah. you focused on printmaking. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, um, I did a lot of portraiture and woodcuts I'd be curious actually I haven't looked at any of those prints or blocks in so many years but uh I'd be curious to look back at them now mm -hmm. um I mean I always did uh I was I always worked figuratively and I think when I was in art school and studying it was not a time that would, figurative work was necessarily popular <laughs> so mm -hmm. um it was mm -hmm. I mean it actually really was a time when it wasn't um but that's a whole other story <laughs> right right Okay, and I think you you went on and, and did 
a nursing program and other, you have a yeah, very, so- <laughs> an interest in the body, which shows yeah. up in your work. So I want to just lay the foundation sure, for that. Sure. <laughs> yeah. So I've been, I ended up teaching in, and I have been teaching at NYU now. I went back to NYU in the late nineties um, in what was going to be a visiting assistant position for one year. And I've sort of been there ever since 1999. Oh. And um, it's a technology program. It's an interactive media program. And I think around 2010, I um, realized I maybe wanted to do something different than be a professor. And that's another whole long story. So I went back to school at night and I went to nursing school and I um, and I completed all my preclinicals and I really loved it. And it was really difficult. And at the moment that I was going to go into the clinical program, an opportunity came up at NYU to move to China to start a program there. And so I thought at that moment I should take a, a leave because the opportunity to go to China was a once in a lifetime opportunity. Right. Um, and that was amazing. And I ended up though, instead of being there one year, I ended up being there for two and a half years full time. And then an additional two and a half years, half time, um, going back and forth between New York and Shanghai. Um, so I never went back to nursing school to complete it. Uh, but then I did complete a program at Columbia in, in narrative medicine, which really looks at the arts and humanities and storytelling in health. So I circled back in a different way, but in one that I has been really wonderful. Right, right. And you mentioned the narrative storytelling, and I'm mm-hmm. wondering about, um, let's talk a little bit about these um, animations you've done about your family. Oh, and so the, did was your fa- were, were your family storytellers? Are is your family storytellers, or are you the story? You're the one bringing the stories out. My family, actually, I mean, I, and we all have very different backgrounds. I have a sister okay. who is a really a talented painter and writer as well. Um, but I think my family, in general, um, not pr- like for the most part, are just really good storytellers. They're really mm-hmm. avid storytellers mm-hmm. and very um, and people with really good senses of humor mm-hmm. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. in general. Um, so it seems like an extension of just you know, so that series of when I was three, those animations were very much actually also based on a structural kind of. Um, um, uh, I just wanted to make an animation a day. So it was really like sitting down and recording and drawing and doing everything within the context of one day. So they feel sort of fast and immediate. And then I did a series around my neighbors when I lived up in Adams, Massachusetts, um, because they were all just really passionate storytellers and very much about immigration to the United States and their neighborhood oh, okay. and the town and all sorts of things. So I've done a um, series of, of uh, sort of, animated audio sort of based storytelling, if that makes sense. Yeah. And that was the one recollecting Adams. Recollecting Adams. Thinking yeah. of. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And um, what about the artwork in that? How is that? Is that done digitally or by hand? So, yeah. So, I mean, I, I draw did, I mean, all my artwork is digital. Like, okay. so, and now my studio practice is entirely moved to the iPad in terms of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, I think the challenge is always to try and make things feel like they're not digital. So, mm-hmm. I mean, sometimes I really try and look at just how something might, you know, look, feel like a woodcut, let's say, mm-hmm. or or feel like a uh, watercolor, another type of material work. I don't, I, but I actually haven't held a paintbrush um, or anything like that in so many years. So it's very, I mean, I, I feel really lucky that we live in a time where we have a tab, you know, have tablets with with devices that feel like pencils and all of that. But yeah, so all of that is digital. Okay. And even now all my drawing and everything, I print it all out. I work entirely digitally and then I build everything 
manually in terms of paper. Right, right. So, okay. So how did you get into paper engineering? Like what was the, um, was it a project or? Yeah. So, so what ended up happening was in 2010, I decided I really wanted to go back to working in paper and um, I was interested in doing something around fairy tales, morality, cautionary tales for children, et cetera. And I, I sort of settled on the Struvel Peter, which I just love because the consequences for misbehavior for the children is always really just dire and just so extreme. Um, so just tell us, for those who aren't familiar, one of the stories in the Struvel uh, Peter. Well, so like in the story of Augustus who would not eat his soup, uh, the moral is if you don't eat your soup, you starve to death and die. Mm-hmm. In the story of Flying Robert, if you go out in the rain, the wind will pick you up and carry you away and no one will hear your screams and cries and you'll never be seen from again. <laughs> They're really, or if you suck your thumb, the evil tailor jumps in through the window and chops them off. They're just as extreme as they can be. <laughs> right. So, um, so at that point, I thought I want to make a different book for each story and and really kind of explore a book form that somehow made sense with the actual story, if that makes sense. So in the story of Flying Robert, the flag book structure seemed like the absolutely perfect one in terms of, you know, dividing up the the ground versus the flying figure versus the storm in the sky. Um, uh, The story of Pauline and the matches as a carousel book seemed to make sense. So it really got me sort of exploring Mm -hmm. just different types of book structures and paper structures. and what ended up happening with that series was that uh, uh, they became quite popular simply because, and there were a lot of collectors who were interested in them, largely because the Struvelpeter is um, taps into so many people's childhoods. So there's, right. I didn't realize the degree to which it would just tap into uh, um, a sort of um, group of individuals who are very sort of passionate about it. Um, and so at that point, um, and so then I started to work with other types of stories and other types of book structures. Um, but what I ended up doing was, and we, we, we've talked about this, you know, I have a real interest in terms of like, what are the higher end limited edition handmade books that go into certain types of collections, but what are the things you can make that are accessible that people can mm-hmm. have that. Um, and, and so I really am interested in that sort of spectrum of like work that basically there's only five or 10 of. Um, and then work that is open edition and right. and can cost a, a very you know, small amount of money. Um, and so at that point, I decided that I wanted to make a single volume book for all of the stories. And so to do that, I wanted to use the original artwork, but I had to use a different mechanism or a different spread or something different from each of the um, handmade books. And so... Um, so, for instance, in the story of the hunter who went out hunting, that was actually 12 paper cuts in a box set. And it became a pull tab that sort of flipped through all 12 right. images all right. instead. So and um, so that book, then um, I ended up kickstarting and I worked with a factory in China because I'd been working in China. I was able to go visit the factory oh, and see right. the fact. And so I visited several factories, which was amazing. And then um and then I and then I kickstarted the project, and I sort of went along doing it. Um, and it was only once I was sort of 
doing it that I realized just how terrifying it is to do a Kickstarter all by yourself. <laughs> and then I'd have these moments like, I'm working with a factory. Like, why am I as an individual <laughs> right. person working with? Like, it was all very, very daunting. Yeah. Um, but I found in general, like the Kickstarter community is incredibly supportive. Like anybody who's made, has had a successful Kickstarter wants other people to have successful Kickstarters. Mm -hmm. So like at this point, if anyone says I'm running a Kickstarter, can you, can you help me? Yeah. I'm happy to share all the information I have for what it means to run a, a successful Kickstarter. And I found even with the factory, they were very nice. And there were many moments where, cause I, I just kept saying, I've never done this kind of production before. Um, and they were being incredibly polite. And so there were these moments where I was like, oh, I made a mistake and I'm supposed to do something. Like <laughs> um, but, um, but it worked out. It worked out and it was really a positive experience. It was an incredibly positive experience. So I want to unpack that a little bit. Um, sure. So how did you learn to do paper engineering? Is it uh, self-taught? Self-taught, completely self-taught books. Um, uh -huh. Do you, you know, take uh, books apart? and study yeah, so them or so there's definitely the books i've purchased that are just like how to make mechanical right. cards mm -hmm. you know the elements of pop-up etc mm -hmm. those kinds mm -hmm. of books and i found those incredibly helpful for me i don't think logically at all three-dimensionally so it really has been it, it took a lot for me to sort of think about separating out like uh, the mechanical elements and structures from content, right? That's mm -hmm. something that I don't really think about intuitively. And then looking at books and taking them apart and really trying to figure out how they did that. Um, and again, I don't really think of myself as a paper engineer. Um, mm. I'm, I'm interested in things, you know, movable elements and that kind of thing. But, you know, I mean, there's so many people in our community who do like these incredibly complex sorts of um, uh, sculptural pieces that, um, that's just not what I do or am interested in doing, or even I'm capable of doing. To be right, honest right, with right. You. I get that. I get that. Cause I'm similar. Um, yeah. Cause yeah, you just have to go where your mind wanders and yeah, yeah you can't do all of the, the, the te techniques, but um, so I'm curious how you, you know, how you found, like you're talking about in the Struval Pater, how you found the mechanism for the story, you know, mm -hmm. like how did you decide to do the waterfall for the one story or the yeah. carousel? Um, I feel like when I have downtime, I just look at tons and tons uh -huh. and tons of videos on YouTube and that uh -huh. kind of thing. I do mean, I think that um, I teach a class on paper art. Um, okay. Now we start with like pa making paper and then paper folding, paper okay. cutting, engineering and just really looking I, I first developed the class when I was in China so starting with the invention of paper in yeah. China and then moving outwards and what you have is you have a tradition of paper craft on every continent right mm -hmm. like and mm -hmm. um and so it really is like the first open source community in so many ways um and so I think that that continues I mean mm -hmm. so long as you're not too proud to like look at videos that might be made by a 14 year old, <laughs> little hands making things. Um, and also I don't really distinguish between like the art world and the craft world and that kind of thing. Uh -huh. So I find like they've, I've learned tons from people who, you know, have, you know, 
call themselves stampers and that kind of thing instead, right. right? But they have like amazing paper craft technique and they make cards. And so I've learned a lot of really interesting mechanisms from those kinds of, mm-hmm. from those individuals and from those kinds of tutorials. And so then I feel like I just have running lists of, of, of interesting mechanisms, cards, things I've seen. And then when I'm starting to make something, I think, huh, maybe, maybe that'll work with it. Or just, you know, I just try and put things together that way. Right, right. And does it sometimes happen? This happens to me where I'm thinking about a project and then all of a sudden I see that video or that thing and it's like, oh, that's it. Yes. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Cool. Cool. I love to hear that. Um, Okay. So um, I know you've done a lot with uh, older some other mechanisms like crankies tell me about mouth and toes book sure um so um i had so in my teaching this paper art class i um in the paper cutting module i sort of stumbled upon an artist named martha ann honeywell who was a 19th century artist in the United States, actually started the 18th century, um, woman who uh, had no hands. And so basically the piece I found said, uh, Cut Without Hands by M.A. Honeywell. And I found that super interesting. Um, And so I sort of put it, like filed it away in my brain and said, when at some point I'm going to do something with this. And then years later, so I discovered this in 2013. And in 2019, I applied to... um, the American Antiquarian Society for a residency uh, because they have this tremendous um, archive of silhouette paper cuts and Martha and Honeywell's paper cuts are in the collection. In that time, there was also an historian, Laurel Dane, who had written her master's thesis on Martha and Honeywell. So she really helped sort of frame who this individual was. And there are several other artists as well, um, Sarah Rogers, um, Nell Saunders, et cetera. And so Basically, Martha Ann Honeywell was about three and a half feet tall, had no arms, had one foot with three toes, and she was a master calligrapher, uh, silhouette paper cut artist, a paper artist, and um, embroiderer. And she managed her own career for 60 years, traveled across the continental United States as well as Europe, and was really this kind of incredible artist who took advantage of the technologies of the time. And there were several of the, of, of that, that did that, um, were of the railroad and also of the press. So she made her own advertisements and she sort of really navigated that space between promoting her sort of the, the extraordinary performative aspects of her working with her body um, and as an artist. And so she would have a room, like she would arrive in a city and have sort of a salon where she would have all her silhouettes and paper cuts. And she did like really intricate paper cuts of like the Lord's Prayer. I mean, just incredible stuff. And then in the back room, she would cut portraits and she had a whole price scheme and everything. Um, and so I just found this, and it was this period wow. in American history that's amazing because, um, because uh, it was before like Barnum, and the freak show oh. and that kind of thing. So these artists actually had economic um, autonomy in many mm-hmm. ways. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had a residency and COVID happened. And so I ended up doing my fellowship at home oh. <laughs> and doing all the archives and research um, online, but it turned into an amazing experience because the librarians were so helpful. And I, I basically said that I wanted to make an electronic book and a physical book. 
And as I was thinking about the physical book, I thought, oh, it would actually be interesting to use a structure of the time. Mm-hmm. And that's when I stumbled like then I, I stumbled across moving panoramas. And my partner, Mike, said, you know about crankies, right? I was like, what are you talking about? And I had no idea that there is a whole movement now, like the contemporary cranky movement of individuals who like build crankies and perform, you know, and, uh, and, a lot and explain, of also, explain what they are, what a cranky a is. Cranky, a cranky is basically a contemporary moving panorama. So it's a box with a scroll of paper and you have these sort of, um, um, you know, pins that you sort of turn slowly and it passes like in front of the, you know, through the cut of the stage. And it's just this amazing sort of like scrolling storytelling. And it's often used with music or performance, often like folk music, et cetera. They're illuminated from behind. And so that seemed really perfect in terms of a a storytelling um, format. So I was quite excited about this. And then I had an exhibition and it was during COVID and I didn't have access to a shop or anything. And so I decided that the whole show had to be paper-based and done from my kitchen, basically. And so I worked with tri-wall car- cardboard that you can make by sort of layering three right. pieces of, of single-ply cardboard. I bought some sheets of it at uh, Lowe's because they sell it also if you want to make boxes out of it. And so I ended up building all these cardboard crankies um, and, uh, and it, and I am so excited about crankies at this point. In fact, I just, uh, at the last show I was at, I debuted these little uh, matchbox crankies. Uh, of, um, they're like little x-ray machines. And I learned how to do that through Sue Truman, who has a website called the Cranky Factory. And it's filled with tutorials about how to make cardboard crankies. Um, I learned everything from Sue and her website. So I have to give a shout out to that. But I definitely also just see that as another type of bookmaking. Uh, yeah, and another yeah. kind of sequential storytelling. Right, right. That's so cool. Um, and so, how did you print and make the story part? So, or is it hand drawn, or just I so want to hear a little all bit the of illustrations it. again were done on my iPad. Um, yeah. So, what ended up happening, uh, which was kind of amazing, I uh, wrote to the Laurel Dane, the historian um, that I had mentioned previously to thank her for her research because it really helped frame my research. Mm-hmm. And she wrote back, and this was during COVID, uh, you know, oh, this is so nice to hear and your work is amazing. Maybe we should work with some, on, together on something. And I wrote back and said, you're the foremost authority on this topic. So how do you feel about working together on this? And I really think it was like such a kind of amazing thing that happened as a result of COVID because we jumped on a Zoom call and liked each other and that happened. Uh-huh. And I don't imagine prior to COVID, if you told me you will be collaborating with a total stranger, that would have happened. Mm-hmm. Um, so she wrote this amazing text uh, that really tied together the stories of three different, actually four different artists working at the time and really situated in terms of the times that they were living in. And um, uh, so then I just illustrated all of it on my iPad. That's like mm-hmm. what I did during COVID was just draw on my iPad, printed it out on mulberry paper large sheets Uh and then basically just kept gluing these sheets together (laughs) sort of built a structure where it would hide the the glue uh the glue points um and then built out these cardboard boxes and wrapped the scroll in i mean the scrolls themselves i i mean they're two they actually it's two crankies worth so i mean the books themselves it's it's about 96 pages um in terms of of this actual storytelling yeah it's a long book Um, yeah yeah. And did, did you, is it illuminated? 
You know, you I mentioned I illumination. I, yeah, in this no. case, I didn't illuminate it just because I thought it just it seemed to work as right. is inside right. the box, so I didn't need it. Um, perhaps in the next one I do, I'd like to think about how to maybe project animations or something behind and work like a small projector instead um, and see how that might work in terms of illumination. Right, right. Oh, so cool. And so this was uh, Mouth and Toes and Will. Mouth and I'll, toes. I'll put the link uh, in the show oh, notes so people you. can look. Hey, listeners, let's take a little break here. And I want to let you know that my new book, The Art of Papercraft, is now out in the world. The book offers a rich variety of projects that will delight crafters, artists, and designers alike, including paper votive lights, pop-up cards, folded paper gift boxes and envelopes, woven paper wall hangings, miniature one-sheet books, and much more. If you'd like an autographed copy, you can order that directly from me at HelenHebertStudio.com. And if the autograph doesn't matter to you, the book is available wherever fine books are sold. It's also available on Kindle. And by the way, my book, Paper Making with Garden Plants and Common Weeds, has also just been released on Kindle. And my other papermaking book, The Papermaker's Companion, has been available on Kindle for a couple of years. Now back to our conversation. So tell me yeah. a little bit about the anime the animation part, because you said you wanted to, it was yeah. animation and physical, right? Yeah. So I made little flip books as well. I found a flip book project oh. that was cardboard based that was actually kickstarted years earlier. You could buy the kits, which was helpful in terms of dividing up the animations. Um, right. So in that, in the context of that um, project, um, the question of how do mouth and toe artists actually work? Um, like uh, came up and so I just did a lot of searches I've found all sorts of videos of people using um, painting with their mouths cutting paper with cutting using scissors in their mouths uh, holding paintbrushes with their toes etc uh, threading needles with their toes and I illustrated those again in silhouette form and you know they became these sort of short loopable animations about mm -hmm. anywhere between like 12 and 30 sort of frames. And then that became the flip books. Um, so we, Laurel and I also made an electronic book uh, and you can download the ebook from our website and it has some of the animations embedded inside of it. Oh, that's so cool. I love all the, the tech components. Um, oh, thank you. Combined with the analog paper. Yeah. <laughs> um, you do so many things. Um Tell me about your um, anatomical layer yeah. books. Yeah. So um, the, uh, the anatomy stuff started when I was actually living in Shanghai. And we had a period where the air quality index went up to like 500, which is mm. extremely unhealthy. And it sort of stayed there for several days. And um, so... I started to really think about the respiratory system and just, because also your body acclimates. I remember the first time the AQI went up to like 170, my ears hurt. And then after that 500 period, it went down to 230. It was like, eh, it's only 230. <laughs> <laughs> but you, you don't feel good, you know, when the air right. quality is bad. And so um, I started to start doing drawings around the respiratory system and thinking about like how to represent it. And, you know, when you look at the first movable books, they were tools, right? Mm -hmm. um, either, you know, Volvels and uh, anatomical books, they were really, you know, paper tools for science. And so right. 
I thought that was a really interesting form to explore. So I did my first anatomical flat book. Um, what's happened since then, and now I work with a lot of antique medical books, like the 1917 edition of Health, the Most Important Thing in Life, et cetera. What I found is that people, it, these kind of flat books really resonate with people in a mm -hmm. way that I think is really interesting. Because I think, aside from the fact that they might, it might tap into some nostalgia that we have about like old science books and right. et cetera. I think it's also a way to sort of look at information that in a way that's non-threatening. Like at this point, we could all Google, you know, our lungs and then perhaps see images and video that is more than we want to see. However, through paper, you can really sort of take people through the layers of the, you know, anything of the body. Uh, and, yeah. and it's really informative and, but it, and, and it's appealing and not, it's too scary. <laughs> like there's, yeah. it's, it's, it's predictable. It's not going to take you to a place where suddenly you're surprised by something that you don't want to see. And so I find that really interesting. Like the yeah. appeal that this old like form of telling, talking about the body has with people. Right. So what kind of, uh, I think you have cards and tell me about all yeah. the things you make related to the body. So I make paper cuts. And paper then, cuts. Yeah. So when I make paper cuts, I typically work from like x-ray drawings. Mm -hmm. um, and I um, have cards. I'm currently working with a factory on another book, a little book. Uh -huh. um, because what I found is that um, people love books, but they don't necessarily know what to do with cards so much too, or at least my cards. So, uh -huh. um, so I'm hoping to have another book for the holidays of just a uh, and it's a six spread book uh, that's got all the sort of flap cards on one side and then some pop-ups on uh, the respiratory and circulatory system, on the uh, uh, skeletal and mus muscular system, on the human head, the ocular system, the auditory system, and the human hand. Um, and so, mm -hmm. um, so that's, so I'm hoping that that comes together in a way. Um, and I'm not going to do a Kickstarter for that. I'm doing a pre-sale instead because I feel like the world is, uh, there's a lot of suffering in the world right now and a Kickstarter doesn't feel like the thing I want to do. Mm -hmm. <laughs> just, so I just want to do a pre-sale instead. And okay. I may or may not have augmented reality. That's another thing that I do is, is okay. I work with AR like to build animation. So you hold your phone over something and it animates. So I may have a layer of AR that's less about the systems of the body and maybe something more, uh, more sort of uh, more about, I don't know, something a little more about like the humanity around having these systems and what it means. Like it's uh, uh, so anyway, I'm, I'm thinking about that. And that's probably something that I'm going to work on this summer a bit. Oh, that's so cool to hear you talking and you don't quite know listeners. This is a really special oh. <laughs> moment I think in an artist's life to hear them talking out loud about what they're thinking and 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 it will come together because she's doing this project yeah uh, pro and probably the AR part but whatever it's fun to hear it's fun to hear that yeah. so I, I'm really curious about what you talked about that um and we can segue into um the art fairs and Etsy yeah. and different places you sell your work but I'm guessing that this is where you are seeing people handle your cards and you said they don't know what to do with them and, right. and how the book format seems to um, 
to yeah. make more sense to them. What do you think that is? Well, I mean, I think that there's, again, so, you know, there, I have some of these as limited edition box sets, right. Mm-hmm. And they're um, printed on beautiful paper and hand assembled and that's, you know, and there's only 20 of them. Right. And so then I, you know, have like more open edition, little card versions that I sell on Etsy, etc. And but when I see the like, at, when I'm at a fair, and I do different types of fair, right? Mm-hmm. I do book arts fairs, and then I do oddities fairs. And we talked about this earlier too. That sense of just like always, I always feel a little bit um, on sort of the perimeter of any community I'm in, right? But mm-hmm. so the um, at the oddities fairs, people really love the Struve Peter story, and they love the anatomical stuff. The rest of my work, not so much. But this this is what they're interested in, and it just. I think that there's something about the book structure where it, every time you turn a page, there's something else that happens that is right. very appealing to people. And I, right. and I think also just resonates back to sort of, we all kind of hold the memory of the first pop-up book we ever had right. or held right. on to. Right. And so I think it taps into that a bit. Um, and so. And do the yeah. car, the cards, something happens when you open them, right? Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're, uh-huh. like they're, they're very simple pop-ups. Cause again, mm-hmm. I, try, when I try and think about what becomes, easy to replicate or cut out or do when I'm watching right. television. Um, they're very simple or they're flaps, you know, they just sort of open up and flaps. And, um, and so they're tiny little flap cards of where it's like the outer portion of the hand. And then there's the muscles of the hand. And then there's the bones of the hand kind of a thing mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, or the outside of the eye and the cross section of the inside of the eye. Um, but um it, I feel like it might be a little limited. And mm-hmm. so, I mean, mm-hmm. and so now I'm trying to sort of struggle with that. And I think there's always also quite frankly, like price points on work and where people sort of fall in terms of what right. feels like yeah. is a makes sense to them. Right. And cards are a funny space in terms of how yeah. much people will might spend be an on the expensive card. card, but the book has right. all of them in it or something or more. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like true. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's, it's funny. I do. uh, I sell directly, too. And so you learn a lot when you do that. Right. Um, So yeah, you also do things across very big price points as well, Mm -hmm. right? In terms of like limited edition. And yeah, yeah, it's a different market. So you have to really figure out yeah, who you're selling to and how how to reach that audience. Right, right. Um, Yeah, so tell me, so I know, I know you just did an art fair and yeah. you, you mentioned uh, the couple of types of art or fairs you do. And then I know you sell on Etsy mm-hmm. um, and, and you're, you're like in a lot of special collections. Yeah. 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 And, and I say that that comes through various dealers and mm-hmm. maybe Maddie Rosenberg at Central Booking and um, Stephanie Young. Um, Bellum, I've exhibited with her at different art fairs and, okay. and that's just been incredible. Yeah. 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 And I'm curious, um, just to give me, give me, give us a brief overview of all what you do at NYU, because you, you, yeah. you do work full time in addition to creating all of this amazing <laughs> work. And I'm, in yeah. particular, I'm interested in this paper class because I didn't know about that. <laughs> uh, yeah. So I teach, um, I teach teach in an interactive media program um okay. when i moved to shanghai i started the undergraduate version so and then it came to the united states so i teach in both the graduate and the undergraduate versions um and i teach courses in storytelling and in digital media so i teach courses in animation and um 
I taught a course called Stories of Illness this past fall that looked at graphic and narrative medicine. And just again, how the arts and humanities dovetail with health stories. Um, and so this, this course now is an, called Paper Art. And it really, as we start with the invention of paper and then the environmental impact of it, and then move from paper folding to paper cutting to paper engineering to um, the contemporary paper craft movement and DIY movement. So this past week, we worked with conductive materials in class and oh. built switches and that kind of thing. Uh, and then they're going to be doing final projects and I'm waiting to see what they do. Um, oh, cool. Yeah, so it's it's a really fun class and the students always really surprise me. And some of them really look at just also like how to incorporate digital techniques. So they start with something and then they are using the later laser cutter and all sorts of different, you know, ways to sort of build things that are super complex and different than than what I've ever seen or done. And so it's it's always inspiring to me also. Yeah, yeah. Wonderful. Um and then uh, let's just touch on the project you did for my book, The Art of Papercraft, yeah, yeah. and tell me how that started. I saw it, and then I we talked about having it in the book uh -huh. because it's uh, yeah wonderful. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I'm thrilled that was in the book. Um, so years ago, I did a little book on the seven deadly sins, and in each one of the panels, I incorporated something from the Hieronymus Bosch paint, you know series, and um, yeah. And it's this, it's like a star accordion. It's this little tiny uh -huh. book and it's open edition. And I just, um, I wanted to sort of make a counterpoint. I was thinking about, actually, you know, let me step back. How I got excited about it was because I, what inspired me was you, because <laughs> I took your class, your, which one was oh, it? Oh yeah, your, flexible book structures. And you had a balloon piece in there, right? Or like an inflatable Oh yeah, piece, inflatable, right. right. And so I did the inflatable. And then all of a sudden I remembered that sort of like inflatable water balloon structure, but super simple that we- Origami, all, yeah. Yeah, origami yeah. one. And I just started to, and so in your, your class, I blew that up and then thought about, can I print on this? And so mm -hmm. I sort of cut something out and stuck it on there and thought, oh, I really want to explore this more. So that's how yeah. that started. And yeah. so then- um, I wanted, so I so just sort of developed from there. So as opposed to the seven deadly sins, I want to work with the counterpoints of the seven virtues, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. And um, and really think about them as this kind of portable uh, votive set that you could sort of inflate. And so they the set now is a little box set and it comes with seven little votive candles inside. So you can set them all up or just pull one and sort of sit with it and illuminate it. And, and so, yeah, I have you to thank for that series because your <laughs> class inspired me. I don't think you told me a month earlier that you're going to build an inflatable, an inflatable votive kit that wouldn't have happened, but that's really uh, That's so from. interesting. Yeah. And is that available on your Etsy shop or where? Not yet. No, not, not yet. yet. So okay. I, yeah. So I was, uh, I, it's limited edition. So I'm trying to figure that out. Right okay. Now. Right, yeah. I think right. there's only going to be 20 of them. So. Oh, okay. Yeah. And the, there are a couple of really unique things about that project uh, and the, why I wanted to have it in the book. The one thing is that the book is about making things from one sheet of paper. Yeah. And um, it was so cool how you, you know, you unfolded and figured out where to print the image. Yeah. Yeah. So that it would fold up and mm -hmm. show in the right place. And believe me that <laughs> you probably had several failures, maybe not because I had to write the instructions and, you know, even though oh, this, is common, this is a common, this is a common 
folded form. Yeah. Figuring out how to say where to print the image and getting that right. I just remember like messing up several times. Um, And then the way that you set them on top of (laughs) the, the little tea lights. Yeah. um, We'll have to put a picture of the project. I'll put that in the show notes. Okay. Um, Or if you have the book, you'll see it in there. Cause it's, Uh it's, um, I don't know. It's just unique the way the, Uh the hole in the balloon fits onto the top of the light. It's really cute. Right. And it, and it just like a little obvious. stand. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. But I mean, yeah. again, like I think that inspiration comes from all these different places. If, mm-hmm. You know, it would not have crossed my mind to do an inflatable nor mm-hmm. a lamp, but light, but like your teaching brought that up and yeah, then suddenly that. it connected the dots. So thank you yeah. for that. Oh, sure. Yeah. Um, Okay. And you told me earlier that you're working, you're, or you're just about to start working on a solo exhibition. Yeah. So this is actually, I'm, I'm very excited about. Um, so I have been working with one of the Montevideo hospital here in New York. Uh, the Hutchinson center uh, has a building um, where the spine and their spine and orthopedic center is located. And as you enter in, there's these four massive uh, display cases. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that's happened with COVID is that individuals go up and they can't bring anyone with them during a consultation. And so um, part of the, and uh, Jody Moisey is the, the curator and it's been amazing working with her, is really sort of thinking about how to create something using pop-ups and paper craft and paper cut cuts to sort of welcome individuals as they're coming through and then also reflect back the possible journey, health journey they're going to have, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so um, I've been meeting, or in February, excuse me, February, March, I met with doctors from, you know, the, who do ankle surgery, hip replacement, shoulder replacement, the trauma specialist, uh, the pediatric specialist, every doctor came in and they showed me how they worked with, with their patients. Um, some of them are donating some of the prosthetics. So it's just really thinking about like how that, that hip or that shoulder or whatever fits into the process. And then for other, in some of it is also how, um, you know, your, your treatment might involve injection as opposed to surgery. And so we're hoping that it's a place that basically you can see yourself sort of reflected in because it's in paper, going back to what we were talking about earlier, it's less threatening than going online Mm -hmm. and Googling, you know, um, and that if somebody's waiting in the lobby for you, you can sort of pull them over and say, oh, this is what's going to happen to me. So um, I'm waiting for the school year to end so I can can uh, start doing all the drawings and paper cuts and that kind of thing for it. But I'm very excited. Wow. So you're going to fill those cases. Yeah. That's a little yeah. daunting because they're right. big, but um, I think the thing will be is that the cut paper cuts will be human sized. Right. Right. And right. perhaps the spine might be more than human sized. Yeah. Right. And what, um, what paper do you like to cut for paper cuts? So I have a little bit of a, a, a crisis with this and I can use your, um, <laughs> <laughs> I, when I was living in China, I brought a whole lot of paper back mm-hmm. and now I haven't been back to China and it's really difficult to go to China with COVID right now. So mm-hmm. uh, my favorite paper supply is really feeling very, um, very precious, very, very uh-huh. precious. So um, I don't know. It's, that's uh, I, I think I'm going to have to spend some time going and, and looking as well in terms of, of that. So what are the qualities that you love about the Chinese paper you're using? Um, well, so there's uh, it must cut well. 
it cuts really well. It's uh, it's got a, a a sort of stiffness to it, mm-hmm. um, but it's not um, it's not super rigid. Um, so it, it can really sort of fold and 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 be easy to sort of glue down. It takes glue easily. Um, I love the colors and there's like they mm. uh, the papers I have have like a slight texture to it and which is I mean you can see this it has a texture to it um, that I think is really quite beautiful. Mm. Um, but yeah, so. Yeah. Oh, well, that's a whole project figuring that out. But I might look at the Japanese paper suppliers. Yeah. Uh, Because some of them sell rolls. It sounds like you might need some larger sheets. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great idea. I don't know of specific, yeah, Chinese papers where you find those. Um, But they're Korean papers Mm -hmm. and other similar type fibers. Yeah. Yeah. I'll take a look. I think we all have that, right? When our, when our, favorite paper is discontinued yeah it's like ah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah um and uh you wanted to recommend a couple of things so oh. I, these are both new to me which is wonderful so oh, nice. sarah jaffe's book work won't love you back yeah uh, i think it's a really it was for me it was an incredibly informative and useful book um she is a labor journalist and so she talks about uh how that you know neoliberalism and capitalism and all these things have sort of created this culture in which we have to love work right and mm. what that means and how it sort of has manifested in different industries she talks about nonprofits she talks about health um education the art world etc and just really for me like had me think about again like what are our ideas of productivity um, what are ideas of worth and value attached to the work that we do? How these notions have been created only in the last part of the 20th century, right? And somehow they feel, uh, and they really tap into our senses of self-worth and that kind of thing. And again, because she's come, she is a labor journalist, it's not so much a health uh, self-help book. It's really like, this is the history of this, yeah. right? And um and so that was very useful for me in terms of really reflecting on my own ideas about work and productivity. Um, and then the second um, recommendation is Alex Sloan, um, who has a whole series of like practical guides for artists. Uh, you can find her videos often on well, on her website, um, but also I think on Udemy is when I first discovered it. And oh. she has a book as well. And, you know, I think she's just, uh, you know, one of those... Uh, really great sort of people who works in the arts and has like fantastic advice about like how to think about your career and just how to think about how you work in the studio and how you engage with artists and the kinds of opportunities you can make for yourself. And um, because there was a point when I really just had to sort of, I worked full time, right? right? And so like, how do I manage my time? And, but also how do I change the balance of, of my work life and all those things and and I, it was really through some of her 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 uh, workshops and readings that I thought about you know how to create work for different audiences and it's okay right mm-hmm. and uh, um, and just just to sort of think strategically about that as well and not feel I always feel like I'm apologizing for things in terms of just feeling like I've really broad interests mm-hmm. and I don't fit into any particular community exactly so. Um, what it means to sort of be on the periphery of many communities <laughs> and all of that. And um, so I just found it really helpful. And I, and I like her tone and how she sort of explains things. 
Yeah, yeah. You brought that up a couple of times and we talked about it before we got on being on the periphery. I feel the same way. And I think I've come to think that um, that's just how artists feel. Yeah. Uh, But I think you and I do have many interests in art. So we're even a little, yeah, a little more further out or something. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because we're not just part of one group. We want to we our minds want to explore many things um right. i looked but at I think Alex... there's great benefits for that i think there's really oh, great yeah. benefits in that absolutely i'm sorry i interrupted no. you well no i interrupted you i was going back to alex sloan i <laughs> looked at her website and she has a bunch of really practical and that's what her, it's called practical advice for artists Mm-hmm. checklists like yeah. um, what you need for your gallery show uh how to do your resume and yeah it's very nice yeah. which is yeah is cool um let's let's end up talking i forgot mm-hmm. to ask about um your work with um i don't know if i'm gonna oh the adaptive design association oh yeah and, yeah. and do you use paper in that i think so um so the adaptive design association is a nonprofit organization founded by alex truesdell um who is a MacArthur Fellow as a result of this work. Um, it, uh, ADA builds custom adaptive equipment for individuals, primarily children with disabilities, from readily available materials. And one mm. of the primary materials is drywall cardboard. Okay. And the benefit of that is that it's really easy to work with. It's very easy to prototype. You can work very, very quickly with it. Um, and, um, it's very durable. Like uh, drywall cardboard is what they ship watermelons in and ship refrigerators and it could hold 900 pounds. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. And I remember buying just to, to yeah. validate that point. When I lived in New York, I think I got this at MoMA. It was a chair made out of uh-huh. drywall and yeah. it was like four pieces of drywall and you hooked them together and it made a chair and it could it hold made a chair. like, 300 pounds or 400. Yeah. Yeah. It's an incredible material. And so like the first, um, I started volunteering there probably around 2002 and I worked on a a little seat for, um, a little girl who uh, had uh, spinal muscular atrophy and it was becoming too painful for her to be held by her parents. Mm. Um, and so they made this chair so that she could be cradled and rocked and, um, and also like had a little stand so she could be seated at the table um, mm-hmm. and participate in family life. And, you know, I went into volunteer and, and then I was stunned that the thing that I made that day was the thing that went to the family. Wow. And, yeah. you know, and so the immediacy of that was pretty incredible. And also it was, a, it was a, something that didn't exist in the world for this child. And time was really of the essence because yeah. her lifespan was, was quite short, you know? Mm-hmm. And so, um, The Adaptive Design Association is an amazing organization. I really recommend anybody who's interested in this kind of work, look them up online. And um, yeah, and and if you like working with cardboard, it's a a fantastic, fantastic place. Oh, that's so cool. And um, yeah, you know, in paper making, many of us use drywall for our drying system. (laughs) So we stack... We stack um, trywall and then blotters and then the wet sheets of paper and then more blotters and then trywall wow. again. We make a whole stack of that. And then we put a fan on the back and it blows through the channels because the trywall has 
it's tougher than regular cardboard would just flatten over time. Right. So the, those channels stay open. And so the air comes through all the layers of drywall and dries all those sheets. <laughs> wow. I had no idea. That's <laughs> yeah. So that's wow. So wow. Yeah. yeah. Well, Marianne, what a treat to have you on the show. Thank you so oh, much Helen, about you. telling this us about my your, treat. <laughs> your journey with paper. You can find Marianne Petit online at MarianneRPetit.com, and Petit is P-E-T-I-T, and her Etsy shop, Etsy.com slash shop slash books, and on Instagram as MarianneRPetit. Um, we'll be talking again soon. Thank Good you. I look forward to it. Thank you. Hey, paper friends. Did you know that I write a weekly blog called The Sunday Paper featuring stories of people doing exciting, innovative, and beautiful things with paper? Sign up at HelenHebertStudio.com slash blog. I'm also creating a lot of content over here, and the best way to stay up to date is to join my newsletter list to learn about free tutorials, online classes, workshops, and the annual Redcliffe Paper Retreat, which takes place right here at Helen Hebert Studio. You can find out more at HelenHebertStudio.com. This wraps up our episode, and if you enjoyed the show, I'd appreciate it if you could leave a review over on iTunes. This helps others find out about the podcast. Special thanks to Gary A. Hansen for the sound editing and Peter Thomas for the music. Visit HelenHebertStudio.com and click on Podcast, where you can find out more about these guys, subscribe to this series via iTunes, and listen to other episodes and access all of the archived shows. Talk to you soon. Besides the season, the main contain.